Thanks for tuning in to the Met Church Podcast. Here at the Met, we are all about connecting people to God and one another. If you have any questions or want more information about what's happening here at the church, then head to our website at metchurch.com. We would love to stay connected with you throughout the week through social media, so be sure to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Now, enjoy the message. Good morning, everybody. Glad you are here and happy to welcome those of you who are watching online. We're in a series called The Good Life, and this is really about the Beatitudes, the greatest message that Jesus ever preached. And what's wonderful about it is it's a message that's within reach of every one of us in the room, all who are watching today. If you know Jesus as your personal Savior, these Beatitudes can be a reality in your life. If you do not yet know Him as your Savior, these Beatitudes can be something that you could experience through a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so the Beatitudes are such a powerful part of what Jesus intended His kids to look like and to live like. In fact, sadly, there are so many people who know Jesus that are living at a level far beneath the level God intends them to live on. They've settled for less than what is best for their life. Jesus said in John 10 that he came that we might have life and have that life to the full. And so many people are just not experiencing that life. And so I want to try to help you if I can. If that's you, if you find your life kind of struggling a little bit below the level you feel, God would have you live on, then hopefully a message on the Beatitudes can help you raise the bar and help you to aspire to God's very best in your life. So if you have a Bible, let's look at this with me in Matthew chapter 5. And in Matthew 5, we'll begin reading in verse 1. It says, Jesus, seeing the multitudes, went up to a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, taught them, saying, and here's the first Beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, we talked on that first weekend out about what it means to have the, be uh, or the one of those of the poor in spirit, right? Uh, and you could substitute that phrase, poor in spirit, with this one word, humble. You could say, blessed are the humble, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Uh, it's interesting that when Jesus begins teaching his kids how to live, he begins by talking about humility. And he begins by underscoring an attribute that he actually uh, uh, enjoyed. Jesus, the Bible says, concerning himself, he said he was meek and lowly. So Jesus understood the quality of humility. He stooped to wash uh, a disciple's feet. And it's sad, as I've said before, to see a humble Savior and a proud sinner. So God always honors humility. He honors it in the hearts of his kids. He honors it in relationships we have with one another. And you and I should always approach each other with a sense of humility. And sadly, once a person has known Christ for a period of time, pride can slip into your life. Uh, you kind of have your fire insurance policy in your pockets. You know you're going to heaven and you're going to miss hell. And so if you aren't careful, you can kind of uh, uh, achieve this level of thinking where, you know, you're a little better than and, and you're, you're, you know, you, you don't have to condescend so much to other people who don't share your values or beliefs. And the, and the reality of it is, as Isaiah said, we should never forget the rock that he got us out of and the pit that he found us in. So there's a sense of humility that ought to mark every person's life, especially those who know Jesus. And so he opens with this idea of being humble. Then he goes in verse 4 to the second beatitude, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And we talked about the fact that mourning, there is a sense in which he's talking about mourning over the loss of someone you love. 
And we all know what that looks like. We know what that feels like. And that's actually a good application of this beatitude, but it's not really the interpretation of the beatitude. The beatitude is talking about having a sorrow over sin that separates us from God, mourning over that, grieving over our sin that keeps us from enjoying the fullness of God. Now, when you study the Bible, understand that every verse has one interpretation, but it may have many applications. In fact, the Bible says concerning itself, there's no scripture of any private interpretation, meaning you can't take a verse out of context and bend it and twist it to make it say anything you want it to say. I mean, you have to be careful when you study scripture that you don't do that. In fact, when you study a verse particularly, you look at it in its context, you might ask the question, what did it mean then? What does it mean now? What does it mean to me? You want to be sure you're gleaning all the goodness out of that verse and applying it in a proper way. So each verse has a, an interpretation, uh, a meaning, but every verse can have many applications. For example, in Revelation 3, you have Jesus standing at the door knocking on a church door. He said, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hear my voice, let him open the door and I'll come in and we'll fellowship, right? When I was a kid growing up in my dad's church, we had a, a teaching method called flannel graph. Anybody remember flannel graph? Don't leave me hanging now. If anybody, six or eight of you remember flannel graph? It's a real thing, boys and girls. Google that. That was actually something they used back then to teach. It was this material you'd stick on this cloth-covered co cloth board, and they would teach off of what they called flannel graph. And I remember having a picture of this person depicting Jesus, or he looked like maybe somebody from the Grateful Dead, but he was standing at the door, and he's knocking on this wooden door. And I remember uh, my teacher saying, boys and girls, that's Jesus knocking on your heart's door. Well, that's a good application, because Jesus does knock at the door of our hearts and desires to come in. That's an application, but it's not the interpretation. The interpretation is Jesus is on the outside of a church wanting to get back in. That's what the verse means. So my point is, there'll be many interpretations, uh, one interpretation, many applications, and the interpretation of this verse has to do with mourning over sin. Now understand, the reason that's significant is because we have to recognize it is sin that separates us from God. David said, in sin, my mother conceived me, meaning that I was born and you were born with a sin nature. We were born separate from God. There is a, a original sin. There's this idea that we were born with a sinful nature. We are sinners by birth. We become sinners by choice. And what keeps a person away from God is sin. So once a person realizes that they need a savior and they invite Jesus Christ into their life, what is established at that moment is a relationship with him. So sin no longer has kept us away from our Heavenly Father because through the shed blood of Jesus on the cross, we've invited him into our life. And what you have now established through the power of God's Holy Spirit is a relationship. And my view is that a relationship is eternal, irrevocable. Um, the Bible says in Ephesians 1, we are now sealed with the Holy Spirit meaning the Holy Spirit seals us in this relationship to God. And the Bible says we're sealed unto the day of redemption. And that's speaking of heaven, until one day we're in the presence of God and the Holy Spirit reveals us before the Father. So there's relationship. Now, sin originally keeps us from that relationship. There's a mourning over the fact that it's my sin that has separated me from God. But once I've received him as Savior, I've established relationship. 
So then how does that look? What does that look like for a Christ follower? Well, sin is still a problem. You never stop sinning. You, you stop maybe being a lost sinner and now you're a saved one. <laughs> but we all sin. So what happens? Well, sin does not affect relationship. Sin affects fellowship. Uh, you, you're in a relationship with someone, uh, but you might be out of fellowship with someone. You may love this person, you just may not like this person. <laughs> you may be in a relationship with this individual, but you're not speaking to them right now. Well, if that's true of you and me, that's true of God and us as well. You can be in a relationship with your heavenly father and out of fellowship with your heavenly father, and what he's teaching is it is our sin that separates us from God. Isaiah said, your sins have separated you from God. And then he says this, so that he will not hear us. In other words, sin actually hinders prayer. So what you have to do is you apply then 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sin, he then is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So what does that mean? It doesn't mean that you're saved all over again. It means now your fellowship with God has been restored. You see that? And Jesus is saying, in this world, you need to approach life with a sense of humility and with a sense of mourning over the fact that we're going to make mistakes, and if we don't confess the mistakes, the sins that we com commit, and the mistakes that we make, it will inevitably separate us from the fullness of God, from the blessings of the beatitude. So blessed are those who acknowledge that and mourn over that, confess it. What is confession, by the way? By definition, the word confess means agreement. When I confess, I'm saying, God, you were right and I'm wrong, and now we're in agreement. And so in confession, I am brought back into a relationship with my father. And what that means is there's blessedness, happiness. I can feel good about where I am. So you have this beatitude that speaks of humility, this beatitude that speaks of mourning. Look at the third one. Blessed are the meek, for they'll inherit the earth. Remember, we touched on the idea that meekness is not weakness. It used to be said of a horse when a horse was broken that the horse had been meeked. That doesn't mean the horse is weak. It's as powerful as it ever was. It just means it's able now to control its power, to control its strength. You and I have enormous power. There's power in our words. Solomon said there's power of life and death in our words. You can kill a relationship. You can ruin somebody's reputation through your words. So our words have power. So what happens is when we are meek, it means we know how to control ourselves. We can control that power. And Jesus said that's essential. It's a beatitude. And then this morning, I just want to touch on this fourth one before we go. And this fourth one is essential as well because he says in verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst, but hunger and thirst now for righteousness. And notice what he said, they will be filled. You and I came into this world hungering and thirsting after things. A little baby comes into the world and it's reaching and grabbing and desiring nutrition. And, and we're born with this intrinsic, this instinctive desire for something that we don't have. We, we have a natural hunger and a natural thirst. And a nutritionist will tell you that you are what you eat. Have you heard that? Which I should be a cheeseburger by now. <laughs> and, and the point of the nutritionist is, if you're not watching what you're, you're eating, it will have a definite effect on your physical body. I don't know if you saw that guy. Uh, he, he decided, this guy decided he was going to eat nothing but junk food for a month to see what kind of effect it would have on him. It's like a college study thing. And so he decided he would eat nothing but McDonald's for a solid month. Did you see that? 
Now, nothing against McDonald's. I mean, we got people that work there. I, I enjoy a Big Mac. Trust me, I like a Big Mac as much as anybody in the house. So I'm not hating on McDonald's. It's just the one he chose to eat after. By the way, a few weeks ago, I spoke for my friend, Ann Hooper, who was here last weekend. And so I stayed at their house. And so Anna finally gave up on us, said, you boys just set up, I'm going to bed. So we're in there, we're watching Blue Bloods. And about 10.30 at night, a McDonald's commercial came on. You know how awesome those commercials are. Man, that cheese is melting down over the burger and the bun with the sesame seeds on top of it. Oh, he's preaching now, isn't he? I mean, that's just, and then they have those fries that are right golden. Oh my gosh. Hooper looks over at me, he goes, man, when's the last time you had a Big Mac? I said, dude, I don't remember. He goes, you want to go get one? I mean, we're talking like this. We don't want to wake up Anna, right? Because she's like, you boys have been griping all the time about losing weight and getting yourself in shape. Now you fat boys are going to go to McDonald's at 11, 30, 11 at night. So we don't want her to end on this deal. He goes, yeah, let's go, get, let's go get some McDonald's. So we hopped in the car. I mean, we go, I mean, not just get the McDonald's. We got the upsize. I mean, if you're going to go, go big, right? <laughs> yeah, I want the big fries. You got any more than that? I mean, is that as big as they come? Yeah, we'll do that. So we're sitting there just sitting, watching Blue Bloods at 11 o'clock at night, eating our Big Mac and eating our French fries. It, it, it was wonderful. <laughs> can I give you, since I'm on this real spiritual track, can I give you my dessert verse? You have to Google it because I, I, I hadn't looked it up. It, it's either in Matthew or Romans. It's in there. Tr trust me on this one. It says, happy is the one who does not condemn themselves in the thing they allow. Now, if you'll just get that phrasing as you Google it, you'll find the reference. That's my dessert verse. <laughs> it's an application, not an interpretation. It says, if you're gonna let yourself do it, loosely translated, don't beat yourself up about it. You like that? Is he boy preaching now, huh? So if you're gonna have a Big Mac, don't beat yourself up about the Big Mac. Well, the guy does this for 30 days. Here's my point. And over 30 days, he gains 30 pounds. And then his doctor, who was monitoring him, started noticing some definite decline in his health. Because you can't take that type of food in constantly, continuously, and it not affect you physically. So Jesus was saying, just as you and I have a natural hunger and a natural thirst, he said, your spirit and your soul, that part of us that is eternal, we have a hunger and a thirst. And the problem is, a lot of times, we don't satisfy that hunger and thirst with the right things. So it's what I'm calling the first thing I would talk to you about for a moment is the poverty of this, the poverty of it. When you don't fill your heart and your soul with righteousness or rightness or a relationship with God, when you fill that part of your soul with anything other than that or anyone other than that, you're going to come up empty not satisfied. Pascal said there is a God-shaped vacuum or hole in the hearts of mankind. And he described it as that. And so many times when we don't put a relationship with God in that place, in our spirit and soul, and we put anything else there or anyone else there, and they become the priority instead of him becoming, then we're hungering and thirsting after something that will not ultimately satisfy. Um, illustration of that is Solomon, King Solomon. I mean, his father was David, the psalmist of Israel, the apple of God's eye. Here is, here is a, a, a man who was raised in a home that loved and feared God. 
And yet, man, he just went the wrong way for a long period of his life. Did you know kids can be raised in a good family and have great parents and go the wrong way for a long period of their life? Doesn't mean you failed as a parent. Just means your kids just did something crazy for a little period of time. Kids do that. Proverbs 22, 6, train up the child in the way they should go, and when they are old, they'll not depart. Didn't say they wouldn't twist off when they're young. Just means you put the good stuff in them, and eventually the good stuff will come back to them, and eventually they come back. But the point is, they veer, Solomon veered from the way of his father. And Ecclesiastes is a book he wrote about his search for meaning and purpose, his desire to fill his heart with the things that would not ultimately satisfy. He said he tried to find it in education. And there's nothing against education. But Solomon tried to meet the deepest need of his life through his education. I'll go to the best schools. I'll learn as much as I can. I'll acquire all the degrees. He had more degrees than a thermometer, but he still didn't satisfy the deepest need of his soul. After all that education, you know what he said? It's empty. It didn't do it for me. I mean, education without Jesus is nothing more than just splendid ignorance. I mean, all of a sudden, he had filled his heart and his life with something that didn't satisfy. So then he went to the party scene. Well, I'll just, man, I'll just live this way. I'll just throw caution to the wind. I'll just do whatever I want to do with whoever I want to do it with. And he did that. He's the wealthiest man in the then known world. So you could imagine the parties he threw. <laughs> and after all of that, he's empty. He just didn't do it for me. Then he moves to lust. He said, man, I'll just, I'll just involve myself with as many people as I can. He, listen, he marries 700 women. Yeah, 700 mother-in-laws, fellas, 700 women. And not only that, he had 300, the Bible calls them concubines. That's Christianese for girlfriends. A thousand women. And I mean, at the end of all that, he said, it just didn't do it for me. I, I, I tried other people and I tried other things and I'm putting all that in my life and nothing is working for me. It's empty. Listen to what he said, Ecclesiastes 2.10. I, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. And listen, yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. Listen, I felt I was chasing the wind. It's like a mirage. Maybe this is it. Maybe I'll go for this. He comes up empty. I'll go for that. His soul is bankrupt. I'll try to fill my life with this. There's poverty in his soul and in his spirit. And then you get to chapter 12 of Ecclesiastes. Many scholars believe he was an old man at this point. And he's looking back over his life. And he's basically saying, if I could teach you young folks a few things, <laughs> here's what I'd tell you. Don't let what happened to me happen to you. Let's hear the conclusion of the whole matter. How did he conclude it? Fear God. Do what he says. This is the whole duty of mankind. Fear God. Not in the sense that you are cringing dread that he's going to keep. No. Fear him means to respect him. It means to honor God. It means to live your life aware of his power and aware of his presence. Solomon said, live your life in awe and respect and in worship of God. And then just, just do what he says. Just do what he says. What did Paul write about in Ephesians 5? Walk in the spirit 
and you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. Just do what he says. And Solomon said, that's it. As simple as I know how. So my point is, he tried all of these things. He went down this road, and he never found fulfillment. And yet I come back to the beatitude of Jesus. Jesus said, if you do this, if you hunger and thirst for right, you will be filled. So there's a poverty of it when it's trying to fill your heart with something that won't satisfy, but there's this possibility of it. You can actually have the deepest need of your life satisfied. It is, secondly, it is possible. In fact, righteousness, the word is used seven different times in the book of of Matthew, and he's just talking about, when he uses the word, he's just talking about living right and, and doing right and making right decisions. And I found that if that's something that is as achievable as Jesus says it is and attainable as he put it here in the Beatitude, I found that first and foremost, if I'm going to have this, I have to want this. I have to want righteousness. I have to want a better life. No one can force it on me. A pastor can't talk me into this. God himself will not force it on me. So there has to come this epiphany in my life. There has to come this crossroad, this place in my life when I realize, like Solomon, I'm trying to put the wrong things in my heart, and I need now to want and desire this relationship with Jesus. One of the verses of 1 Corinthians 3, Jesus said, there's no better foundation than can be laid than the foundation which is laid, and that foundation is Christ Jesus. You build on him. He's the foundation. And you know what happens? The house can fall, but if the foundation is solid and sure, you can build again. There can be a plan B and a plan C. And I'm just suggesting that before this beatitude becomes a reality, before the thirst and the hunger of my heart can be satisfied, I have to want this. Nobody can want it or or fix it for me. Not only want this, listen to this, I got to act on this. I mean, if you're thirsty, you got to drink. If you're hungry, you got to eat. Remember the old adage, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink? That's true of everybody in the room and everybody watching. It doesn't, no, it doesn't matter how true the truth is. Jesus said, if you know the truth, it will set you free. If you apply truth, truth will set you free. And I'm just suggesting that you can hear all the truth, you can hear all the information, you can acquire all the knowledge, but until you act on that which you know to do, it will not change your life. James says the one who knows to do good and refuses to do it becomes sin. It works against you. So I have to want it. I then have to act on it. Listen to this. I have to continue in it. When Jesus says hunger and thirst in the Greek, those are verbs. It indicates continual uh, activity. It doesn't mean just hunger once and you got fed and got thirsty once and you got something to drink. It means every day, just as you physically are hungry and you physically are thirsty, we spiritually are hungry and thirsty. Jesus told the woman at the well in John 4, remember, if you'll drink of the water I give you, you'll never thirst again because it's continually, continually, continuously flowing. He said in John 6, I'm the bread of life. And if you partake of the bread of life, he said, it'll meet the deepest need of your heart and of your soul. So we have to want it. We have to act on it. We have to then continue in it. And here's the fourth thing I'd say about that is we have to consume all of it. We have to be totally committed to this. Most people have just enough Christianity to get them through life and not enough of their Christianity to make a difference in life. 
And back to 1 Corinthians 3, the Bible says, one day every Christian will all stand before God, and we're going to give an account for the works that we did here on the earth. And we'll be rewarded according to what we've done. Wood, hay, stubble, gold, silver, precious stone is the, is the way he was having it described. And you know what he said? He said there'll be people in heaven that when their life is evaluated and their works are appraised, will have absolutely nothing to show for the life they've lived. They'll stand in heaven, and I love the way the King James Version puts this. It says, they'll stand before God, yet so as by fire. Let me, let me give you that in Texan. You ready for the Texas translation? It's by the skin of their teeth. They're saved but singed. They just got through the door, and it slapped them right on the backside. They just barely got to heaven. I'm just saying there'll be people that live their life that way. They didn't totally consume this. They weren't all in. I've shared this with you before. It's a good news and a bad news. The good news is you can have all of God you want. Thirsty, hungry, you can have all of God you want. Bad news is you have all of God you want. God is willing to satisfy the deepest need of our life. It is possible. Let me give you the last thought and we'll go home. There's the power of it. The power of it. What does me aligning my life with God's purpose, inviting him into my heart, putting him in that proper place, hungering and thirsting for, what does it do? What's the power of it? Number one, it puts me in right standing with God. Right standing with God. My sins are forgiven. My name is written in the Lamb's book of life. It's God's double entry system, by the way. The Bible talks about the book of life. That's the registry of all mankind. And then it says there's the Lamb's book of life. That's for people who've been born again. It's a double entry system. <laughs> God's a good accountant. And I'm just suggesting to your heart that all of a sudden when you receive him as Savior and his righteousness becomes a reality in your life, it is an incredible thing to have your sins forgiven and your name written in heaven knowing you belong to him and he belongs to you. Paul was trying to explain that to Jewish people in Romans 4, and he used Abraham as an example. He said in verse 1, what is it then that our father Abraham is pertaining to the flesh? What did Abraham find? And then he answers the hypothetical. He said, Abraham believed God, and that belief in God was counted, imputed, it's an accounting word, was counted unto him for righteousness. You say, how were people in the Old Testament saved? Same way we are saved. They were saved looking forward to the cross, believing one day Jesus would come. We're saved by looking back at the cross, believing one day Jesus did come. And Abraham said he believed God. And when he believed God, that faith in God was counted unto him righteousness. God made him righteous because of his faith in God. What does, what does this do when I receive him as Savior? It makes me right with God. Secondly, it gives me a a right standing with myself. Now that God has forgiven me, get this, I can forgive myself. Some people struggle with that. Some people have experienced the forgiveness of God, but they've never come to a place where they have forgiven themselves. And they live with condemnation. They live with guilt of some mistake they made in their past. And man, if you've never made a mistake, you probably haven't made much. You, you can't go through this life. Jesus said it's impossible to live your life without offense. 
You're going to be offended. You're going to offend someone. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to break stuff. I'm just saying you can't go through life. And what you have to quit doing is beating yourself up about something you can do nothing about. And one of the beautiful things about hungering and thirsting for righteousness and being filled is it puts me in the right standing with God. It puts me in the right frame of mind to face my life. Let me share this with you. When sin enters the picture in Genesis 3, three things happened that affected all of mankind. Number one was condemnation. Condemnation. The second thing that happened in the garden when sin entered the picture was guilt. Remember, Adam and Eve hid. The third thing that happened in the garden when sin entered the picture was separation. God drove them out of the garden. And ever since then, you and I have dealt with feelings of condemnation, guilt, and separation. But when you receive Jesus as Savior, and you hunger and thirst for his righteousness, and you are filled, read Romans 8. It opens this way. There is, therefore, now, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus said, I don't condemn you. Quit condemning yourself. You read a little farther in Romans 8. He says, who shall lay anything to the charge of my elect? Meaning, who can accuse you of anything? Guilt's a powerful thing. It's a powerful thing because we remember what we've done. I mean, you, you can't always, you can't erase those memories. It's always in your mind. And, and guilt's a powerful thing. Have you ever thought about it? That's why the devil is called the accuser. The accuser of the brothers, the accuser of the, of the accuser. He calls you out. He called, you did that. You know you did it. You know you did it. And you're sitting there and all of a sudden you're going, man, I was going to do this or I was going to do that. And I, who am I to do that? If they knew about my, if they knew about this, oh man, I just, you know, I can't. And the devil just puts you under his thumb and he makes you miserable. When the Bible says God has put those sins as far as the east is from the west, never to be reminded or reminded of, he'll never remind you about them again. So if he's forgiven you, forgive yourself. There's no condemnation. Quit condemning yourself. There's no guilt. God's not putting that on you. See, you have to understand. Let me camp here just for a second. Help somebody, maybe. The Holy Spirit will convict you of sins you've not yet confessed. Now, remember, if, you're, if you belong to him, it doesn't affect relationship. It might affect fellowship. So when I've made a mistake and I need to clear the record, the Holy Spirit will bring that to my, my mind. So what do you do? 1 John 1, 9, confess, restored. We're good now, right? So the Holy Spirit conv convicts me of sins that I have not yet confessed. Okay, that's the Holy Spirit. The unholy spirit, watch this now, the unholy spirit accuses me of sins I have confessed. You see the difference? He's accuser. So where does guilt come? You say, man, I asked God to forgive me. Why do I still feel this way? That ain't God. <laughs> it's coming from somewhere, but it's not coming from there. Understand, you've got an unholy spirit that's trying to Press, or trying to impact your thinking and trying to make you miserable and trying to affect your spiritual equilibrium. So no, that's not the Holy Spirit. That's the unholy spirit who's accusing you of something God has forgiven you of. So walk in that forgiveness. Tell yourself, I'm forgiven. Don't listen to that garbage. And then the third thing he does, he deals with separation in Romans 8. 
And he asked this question, who shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus? Shall principalities or powers or things present or things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other thing can separate us from the love of God? Summarize it. There's no condemnation. There's no guilt. There's no separation when his righteousness is in my heart. It affects my standing with him, my standing with me. Lastly, it affects our standing with other people, with other people. Let me show you how this works. In Ephesians 1, verse 3, Paul said, in a relationship with God, we understand, listen to this phrasing, it's in the King James, he has made us accepted in the beloved. The cross has made us accepted to God. Here's what I would challenge you to do as I close this morning. I would challenge you to accept the fact that God has accepted you. Doesn't matter who you are, where you've come from, what you've done, God has accepted you. You don't have to get your act cleaned up to come to Jesus. I love that old hymn Billy Graham closed all his crusades with. You remember? Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. O Lamb of God, I come. You know how you come to Jesus? Bitter, broken, sinful, hurting, betrayed. You come just like you are, messed up. Jesus said, those who come to me, I will in no wise cast out. Jesus said, whosoever will, let them come. You know what the welcome mat of the church should be? Whosoever will, let them come. Most people can't accept the fact, they cannot accept the fact that God has accepted them. You've been accepted. The cross was God's appeal. He's saying, if you'll receive me, I will accept you. So what you have to do is not only accept the fact God has accepted you, listen, you have to accept his acceptance of you. That's your faith. Faith is me accepting his acceptance. It's one thing to say, I believe in the cross. I got a crucifix. I got it on the wall. I believe it. I, 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 believe, I don't have any problem with the cross. I believe the cross. I see it up on the building. I know it's not, they're not into math. That's not a big plus sign. I, get, I know the story. I understand the cross. I get it. I get it. You, you understand God's accepted you, but you've never accepted his acceptance of you. And so your life hasn't changed. So you have to accept the fact God has accepted you, and then you have to accept his acceptance of you. And then the third step is you accept yourself. Back to what I said a minute ago. You accept you. You accept you. And the psalmist said, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. God doesn't make junk. He made you with a plan in mind, a design in mind. God has something for you to do that there's not a person on the planet that can do it the way you do it. And until you've done it, he ain't done with you. So you have to accept yourself. And then here's what will happen. This is four. You're free to accept other people. You know what happens when someone can't accept other people? It's not rocket science. When somebody is not healthy and they can't accept other people, it's because they can't accept themselves. You know why they can't accept themselves? It's because they've never accepted the fact that their creator has accepted them. They've never accepted his acceptance. Because when you accept the fact he's accepted you and you accept that acceptance and you accept yourself, <laughs> it'll free you up to accept other people. Jesus said, if you will hunger and thirst for righteousness, you will be filled. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. 
your word is so practical and yet so powerful. And this morning, Lord, as we've experienced worship, we've been able to engage and lift our hearts toward heaven. We pray that you have received our worship. You've given us an opportunity to invest and to give into the life of the church and have a part in helping hurting people. Father, we thank you for over a thousand families that we are able to feed every month because of the generosity of this church. So, Father, thank you that we get to be a part of that through what we've given. Thank you, Lord, for the celebration of baptisms. That one we saw just a moment ago and those all weekend long, we, we celebrate that, Father. And then, Father, we pray for people in this room or those watching who may have never trusted you as Savior, that this might be that moment for that hunger and thirst that is in intuitive, instinctive in their heart might be turned toward you. And they might desire to know you as a personal Savior. And I encourage them, Father, as they're watching or in this room listening, that they would pray this prayer and simply say, Lord Jesus, with everything I know about me, I now trust all that I know about you. Come into my heart. Forgive my sin. Be that reality in me. And this I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for tuning in today. If you have any questions or prayer requests, please contact us by visiting metchurch.com so that we can follow up with you this week. We look forward to seeing you next week.